All right, so we'll get started. So uh, hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, I'm Matt Millette with the Albany Archives and Spectrum News and uh, board member of Historical Albany Foundation. And this is Listen Albany, the capital city's cultural heritage podcast brought to you by Historic Albany Foundation. Welcome to the third episode of the series, Finding 48. The story of how the seemingly ordinary building on Hudson Avenue was discovered to be one of the last remaining Dutch buildings and the oldest building in Albany. The Van Ostrand Radliff uh, House is a timber-framed urban Dutch house constructed in 1728. Over the centuries, the house has altered or was altered many times until the home was encapsulated within a much larger building that no longer resembles a Dutch house. This podcast will delve into the stories that revealed 48 Hudson. Uh, and now let's do our introductions of our three magnificent architects here. So we have uh, Doug Booker, a restoration architect for over 40 years at John G. Wade Architects. Wave hello to your, your adoring fans. Uh, we've got Walter Wheeler down all the way in the end. That He is a senior architectural historian with uh, HeartGen Archaeological Associates for about 20 years or so. And Bill Brando, closest to me, because i got to keep him close to me. He's a wily one. Uh, he is described as Doug Booker Light. He is less talented, but he's younger, so he has that going for him. And he is also at John G. Waite Architects. Okay. Now that we have the formalities out of the way, the Van Ostrand Ratliff House, uh, it's now easily pretty noticeable as a Dutch-style building, but that was not always the case. Hudson Ave was once densely, con densely constructed with uh, early to mid-19th century buildings, which hid much of the character-defining architect uh, architectural details from view. So uh, this will be my first question for, uh, we'll go with Doug. When was the building uh, beginning to be suspected of being older than it appeared and of its Dutch origin? I was kind of going to set the scene a little bit and go back in the midst of time, back to 1960 when I was about 13 years old. And I used to go downtown with my father on Saturdays, uh, go to the library, snoop around, go to the coin store, whatever. And we used to go to a restaurant on South Pearl Street called the Royal Cafe, Chinese restaurant. Um, and me being me, even at that age, I would like to wander around the city, look at old buildings, and go in places if I could get in them. Um, and I realized then that uh, that area of Hudson and South Pearl was Chinatown. Um, uh, had developed in the 1920s. And I would go down uh, 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 Hudson Avenue, and there was a Chinese laundry that had a incredible Chinese uh, piece of porcelain in the window with a plant in it, and I coveted that for years. Um, but that's how I was introduced um, to that part of the city, with no notion that uh, the Saul restaurant equipment building was anything than but a 19th century uh, rather beat up building at the time. Um, if we go fast forward 15 years to, let's say, around 1975, um, I found myself working um, on Hudson Avenue at 388 Broadway in Hudson, um, architectural firm, um, and I was on an upper floor and I looked out over that street in that neighborhood. And it was around that time, a few years later, that before my very eyes, that neighborhood just started to disappear. They started demolishing 
uh, buildings uh, up and down both sides of the street. Um, really upset me a lot but because I because I, I had loved that area but I also gave me the opportunity to do my usual snooping and so I went down to these vacant buildings with bulldozers behind them knocking them down and I would go inside and um, I went into that the Chinese laundry that had that flower pot in the window that I wanted of course that wasn't there but when I when I went upstairs I discovered um, it was a Chinese tong a Chinese club um, on the top floor that dated from the 20s, and I found all kinds of cool artifacts. Um, but at the same time, uh, the so-called uh, Saul Equipment Building became more visible. And from the street and from the um, vantage point of my office, you could see that, that gable roof hidden behind that facade. And at the same time, I was uh, developing my ideas about Dutch architecture, had been working on some Dutch buildings uh, professionally. And I started to think, I wonder if there's something really early about that building. Same time, some other people, um, uh, John Wolcott and, and Wally, were also uh, snooping around the neighborhood. And we all had kind of the same notion. Um, <laughs> so um, at one point, um, I went over to the, the building and asked Mr. Saul, could I look around? And he said, didn't, wasn't really too keen about that. So I contacted Historic Albany, get more official. And uh, he finally relented and said, yeah, we can come in and take a look. Um, and he set a date like a week, a week later. And we um, all met there and anticipating all sorts of things went in. And um, I said, can we go upstairs and look at the attic? And he said, well, only one person at a time. So I went up there and... Uh, why, why would he have said just one person at a time? What's I going on with the attic? I think he was being very cautious. Well, it was kind of circuitous to get up there. It was kind of a little stairway, and it was, it was not the safest thing, I would say. So he just wanted uh, one person, I guess. So I went up there anyway, got up there, and lo and behold, everything was covered with brand-new paneling. You couldn't see a thing. Um, Found out uh, a while later, John Wolcott had been watching the building, and he said, yeah, Pat, last Saturday, Mr. Saul carried in a bunch of uh, paneling. Um, <laughs> so uh, came back down, it's kind of sad face, and said, well, you can't see much up there. Can I go to the basement? And he said, oh, you don't want to go down in the basement. It's really dirty. Um, but went down, and bah, there it was. You could see everything. It was definitely an 18th century structure. Um, an early 18th century structure, came back up all excited, and everything just went turned loose. Everybody rushed down in the basement here regardless of what Mr. Saul wanted. Um, and th that was it. Um, and I think um, Wally can tell you a little more about, I think he'd also been in the building. And I, I kind of suspect that Wally may have been in there a little earlier, and he may have alerted Mr. Saul, and that's why Mr. Saul knew to cover everything up. I've always wondered that, but I, but I now think that's probably the case, because I can't imagine why he would think, I think it is the case. that there was something important <laughs> there <laughs> that he had to cover up. So what time frame are we in right now? I would say uh, the late 80s. Late 80s? Yeah. 1988. 1988, like yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, it was right, right before Doug made his visit that I had uh, gotten into the building just kind of innocently wandering around. <clears throat> I was working on um, uh, State Street at the time, Wagner and Reynolds Architects, and we had a project in the, the pastures, and so I would walk by the, the building every day on my way over to the, to the sites that I was documenting. And um, I just thought at one point that the building uh, intrigued me, and uh, I struck up conversations with Mr. Saul, and he let me in. 
and uh, I did see the, uh, the, <laughs> the the framing before it was covered up, and um, and I think I don't know if I had told you or Paul Huey or some other folks, maybe Doug uh, Sinclair, at that time, uh, and uh, yeah, when the next time uh, all of us got into it, it had been uh, covered over. Uh, Mr. Saul was very concerned that um, that he'd lose the ability to. Uh, have control over the building to be able to sell it um, uh, because he, he considered it as uh, a retirement nest egg. So Mr. Saul knew what he had and he was hoping that it wasn't going to be found out <coughs> until he was retired essentially. I think he only yeah. knew what he had after we got excited about it. After you told him. <laughs> yeah, no, after he, we told yeah, him while he let it out of I don't think he, I don't <laughs> think he quite realized initially, but once he saw all these people that were excited about this old structure, mm -hmm. he knew there was something about it. And then when we tried to, uh, we went before the Historic Resource Commission to, you know, we thought this, this needs to be protected. It needs um, um, some sort of landmark status. And the Historic Resource Commission agreed with that um, but uh, they had to also present it to the Common Council. And at that, I remember at that meeting, Mr. Saul came with his wife and told the story about it was their, their, their one asset. And they were quite old at that time, and um, if it was made into a landmark, they might have trouble selling it, and da, da, da. so the Common Council refused to, to designate it. So. Um, for a while there, it was quite vulnerable <coughs> because it was really not officially recognized for what, what it really was. So it's now, it's 1988, and we still have 50 Hudson to the one side. Was it open on the other side, or was there another building still perching it up to the, to the east? Um, that building had, I don't know, well, you know when that came down? Yeah, it was, it was, quite it was a long taken time down ago. in the 1940s or 50s. Yeah. I had seen a newspaper article on it, and um, it was described as having really substantial framing. So it was, and uh, some of the artifacts they found when they took it down dated to the 18th century. So it was also a, a fairly early building. Yeah, it was quite an impressive building. I found a photograph of it today, and it was pretty substantial facade on it, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was, it was long gone. So... That side, that, that's what allowed you to realize that there was this gable roof because the, uh, <laughs> the false front, the sort of old west front that covered the gable roof, you, you had no sense of that from the street. But with that building missing and then especially from looking up from my office a couple stories up, you really got a sense there was something very different going on there than what, what you would, would normally see from the street. So the first listing attempt, this would have been with Mr. Saul, or would this have been after Mr. Saul? Right no, it was with Mr. and Mrs. Saul, like I said, attended that, um, that meeting, and that's what nixed it. But the, the second time, was that, what year was that? Well, yeah, there were, there were two attempts. One, Mr. and Mrs. Saul were around. I, I wasn't around. That was late 80s. Yeah. The other one, I was working at Historic Albany Foundation, and that would have been around 2001. Um, and Mrs. Saul was was a widow at that point, and she came into the Common Council. I, my recollection is she was in a wheelchair, um, but it wasn't great optics for Historic Albany. And, you know, if anyone doesn't know the site, it's surrounded by parking lots. Mm -hmm. And when they thought 
the Sauls were thinking of this as their nest egg. They weren't thinking so much of selling the building to a new owner as selling the building to someone who would turn it into a parking lot. And that was the highest and best use for that site. So um, she was adamant that it not be listed. We were only talking about local listing at that point because actually when Brian Parker, who we'll talk about later, but once it got on the, the National Register, there was actually a bit of back and forth to get it on the National Register because it had been so altered and was so hard to identify as a Dutch building. Um, so there was a bit of gymnastics to get it on the National Register, but this was just local listing that it, they were going for twice with the, the Historic Resource Commission. So we just skipped over an entire decade of the 90s. So what was happening in the 90s from 88 to, oh, no. to 01? Uh, there, there must have been a lot of back and forth behind the scenes a, going a on. A number of people in the preservation community kind of conspired to keep it sort of in the public eye. Um, uh, Doug Sinclair, who was at Historic Albany at the time, did a report on the building in 1989. And um, Paul Huey wrote about it in uh, his essay in 1993 in, um, in uh, Albany Architecture. Uh, and there were some other things that, as well as the, the listing attempts, that kind of attempted to keep it from falling below the radar. But yeah, when it was an operating restaurant supply store, there wasn't much you know you could do. I mean, they, they were not interested. Um, I only know Mrs. Saul, but she was not interested in, in word of its importance getting out. Um, but yeah, Paul Huey's book, that's how I found out about it. As it was mentioned earlier, I'm quite a bit younger than these two gentlemen. <laughs> I didn't even hear about the building or anything until 1993 um, when I got Diana Waite's book, Albany Architecture, for Christmas. So that was the first I knew anything about it. Do you and still that, have that copy? I do still have that copy. Of course copy. you do. <laughs> One of three copies I have. <laughs> and I just found he had my copy, which I just got back from. <laughs> because someone in this room has my copy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so it was essentially so, a waiting game. They were yeah. old, and we were waiting for the inevitable. <laughs> right. Well, and nobody, <laughs> nobody had really seen inside other than very brief visits, so nobody really knew what was there. You couldn't do any analysis of it. Um, Paul Huey's write-up that was in Diana Waite's book um, had it as a 1759 building because he was assuming that it wouldn't have been built until after the palisade that was out front was moved. Um, so the, the stockade surrounding Albany. Um, so that even the dating was just based up purely on speculation. I mean, they knew it was an early Dutch building based on what they'd seen very briefly. Um, but, you know, Paul Huey's analysis of the building had nothing to do with it architecturally other than what you could see from the outside because no one was really allowed in. They were, they were not interested in <laughs> spreading the word. Yeah, Paul had studied a number of uh, maps. I was in conversation with him about about it at that time, and, and these continued until the early 2000s when we actually had the building dendro-dated, <clears throat> had dendrochronology done on the building. And um, Paul's analysis was mostly based upon maps, and the 18th century maps of the city don't really show any buildings outside of the uh, stockade, and so he was using that as, uh, as evidence for, for his thesis also. So, for roughly 10 years, we went with the 1759 date. That that's when that house was built, uh, which is still pretty old. It's pretty old. But it's not old, old, especially for Albany. I mean, we had other 18th century buildings within Albany that were still sitting around 1750, 1760 in, in that time frame. Not a lot, but, you know, more than many of the other 
you know, metropolitan areas in the Northeast. Um, so to, to piggyback on that, when, when did the restaurant supply store finally close up shop, and when are we finally able to get our hands on the inside? Probably went out of business 2003, four, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. Um, it was right around then. Um, and basically, then it was in, it might have been a little before that, because there was a protracted period of time when it was closed and it was in, you know, whatever limbo because of the will or whatever. Um, but it went on the market in 05 or, or 06. Um, and that's when things started picking up. So everybody who'd kind of been circling and was aware of the building and interested, um, that was the first time that anybody could really get in. And, and, and it was about that time that uh, we went over and met with Bill Bantz, um, who, developer, who owned a lot of that property and had his eye on that property and, and the building next door. Um, and we just wanted to alert him to the fact that um, it wasn't just an, another old building in downtown Albany, that actually both of the buildings were quite significant. And he was um, as sympathetic as a developer could be. Um, he, he, he didn't kick us out, he listened to us. Um, <laughs> he let us speak our, say our words. <laughs> um, but then he, he finally left himself, so um, he didn't. He was not really a player in the thing. Eventually, did he ever tell you what his plans were for for those? Um, he had a grand scheme for Ecom Square, a huge structure of some sort, commercial, residential, hotel, whatever. Um, kind of a pipe dream. I don't think he really had much in the in the way of plans at that point, but he was just acquiring land and buildings. Um, but we were quite nervous, you know, because he was. He was, at that point, he was one of the bigger developers in the, in the city. Something to recall, too, is in the late 80s and very early 90s, KeyCorp had purchased all the properties to the west and um, had built one uh, tower, the one that's there on South Pearl Street, but had plans for a second, larger building uh, that would go actually just a couple of lots away from, from the, uh, the Radliffe House. And uh, that, that was never built, but they did do the, the lot clearance. There were houses there along the side street up until probably about 1990 or 91 or two. I think the other, other thing to remember um, is we're, we're talking about the Dutch house, but the, the building to the, to the, to the west, with a, which was uh, most recently Jesus Saved structure, um, looked like a Victorian structure, but from the side elevation of that building, you could see that it was a gable roof, late 18th, early 19th century structure that Wally did some research on to get a determined date. So it also had some significance, and not just uh, historical architectural significance, but it, but it, it sort of was the, the, uh, the, the thing that the Dutch house could lean on. Um, this fragile wooden structure, um, this skeleton-like structure that the Dutch house was, um, was right up against this more substantial brick building. So we were always quite happy that, um, that there was this other neighboring structure that also had some interesting history. And a lot of our early renderings of, of the site show that the, basically the two buildings restored, not just the, just the one structure. Unfortunately, a couple of years ago, through the negligence of some people I won't mention, uh, we lost that equally important building um, simply because it wasn't being maintained. 
Yeah, but there's a silver lining there, and we'll we'll get to that in yep. a little bit. Uh, so back back to forty eight. Saul's is out, and now now architects and historians and preservationists are finally able to get inside the building. What what are they now able to see now that the the the, the pots and the pans have been moved out? <laughs> Nothing. Basic. I mean, you couldn't see much more because what what Mr. Saul had covered up was still covered up. Um, so you really couldn't see much. Um, things started to happen. So I had contacted someone who, Brian Parker, who owned a Dutch building in Selkirk, who I'd known for about 10 years, um, and mentioned that 48 Hudson was for sale. Um, and so he almost instantly bought it. Um, I think it was in the $150,000 range, so he just plopped down money and bought it. A bargain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he pretty quickly, or very quickly, started removals. So he, he stripped out. Because because it was a, a, a commercial building, It years and years of just new uh, inserts were put in. But every time they did that, they stripped everything out. So there weren't a lot of layers of history um, there was the 1930s stuff, which Doug mentioned that false facade was 1930s, and there was some 1930s stuff, but everything else was either the stuff that Mr. Saul put up to hide the interior after Wally let him on, <laughs> um, or it was 1930s stuff. So he pulled all of that out, and then you could see what was there, but when Brian bought it, you could see what was in the basement, which Doug mentioned, but he was buying, you know, and you could see the roof shape and things like that, but you couldn't see too much of it. So he was brought buying largely on faith that there was something more there based on what you could see. Because there kind of had to be. Because there can't be a Dutch roof and a Dutch basement without something in between <laughs> having <laughs> held it together. So, um, but you know, what condition it was in, how hacked up it had been, um, he didn't know until, and that's really when people um, started looking at it. Because when it was for sale, I mean, it, like I said, there was a long, fairly lengthy period of time when it was in whatever probate or who, who knows what. Um, but it's not like people were getting in then. Um, and then when it was for sale commercially, people weren't getting in then. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty exciting when, 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 he, when they started doing the removals because, you know, we'd been waiting all these years to really get in there and really, really look. Um, so I, when I went over um, and walked in, Brian, Ryan, Brian was there, um, and he had already removed a lot and he was really 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 just interested in the dutch house um, and, and um, bill said that well there, there wasn't a lot of other stuff but but actually there was and when i walked in the the front door and i'm walking across the floor and i look down on the floor and i see this piece of wallpaper laying on the floor and i look down and i i'm a i'm a wallpaper person um, i look down and i said hmm this is this looks kind of early, and I look over on the west wall, and there's more of it on the west wall. Um, it actually turned out to be probably a late 18th century, probably Albany-produced wallpaper um, that's very flamboyant, kind of baroque pink and bright pink and green design of that period um, that was just literally falling off of the wall onto the floor. So I swooped up a bunch of it and took it back to the office. Um, so there, there was stuff there to, to study, but um, and there, there are still things uh, there that need to be be looked at closer. Yeah, there's a, there's always a sign when you know you're in Albany when you walk into a 
300-year-old-ish house, and you look down, and there's 200-year-old wallpaper, and only one guy says, I think this is something. <laughs> so we, we think the building is 1759. We're, we're, we're tearing off the, the layers of onions within this house, and at some point, dendrochronology comes into, into play here. Let's really pinpoint when this house is. Uh, when, when this house was built. So what do we get? And if, if anyone wants to explain dendrochronology. Yeah, I'll uh, do that. I, I can give a little bit of background to how, how it came to be tested also. Um, <clears throat> in uh, 2003, I was involved with uh, the documentation of uh, the um, Daniel Peter Winnie house in Bethlehem, which was being taken down. <clears throat> Uh, for uh, reconstruction, at least partially, in the Metropolitan Museum. And uh, as part of the documentation of the building and trying to find out what it is that they actually had, uh, they, uh, they were interested in, in having dendrochronology done. Uh, dendrochronology is the uh, sampling of pieces of wood uh, to determine when it was felled. Now, um, different species of trees put up different kinds of uh, rings. Uh, oak, for example, puts up four different kinds of wood each year so that when you sample it, you can actually tell within a three-month period when, it, when the tree was felled. Uh, pine <coughs> uh, puts up uh, basically one ring, but um, can put up a secondary ring depending upon how long the season is. Uh, so these pieces uh, in um, all uh, these houses were uh, were pine, and um, when we were doing the uh, Daniel Peter Winnie House, uh, um, Brian Parker became interested in, and this is before he uh, uh, acquired the, the 48 Hudson, he became interested in finding out the date of the house that he had purchased because it, they were owned by father and son. And so uh, we tested uh, timbers from his house as well. And I think that came out to, I think it was like 1726, his house. And the, the son's house, which the Met had, which they were hoping was a very early house, uh, came out to 1751. Um, <laughs> so just a baby. That's just yeah, a baby house. Just a baby. <laughs> so uh, the, the process, basically, you take a hollow core drill, and, and which is about dime size in the exterior, and it, and it cuts up. Uh, basically something the size of a pencil. And um, they mount that to a, a block, they glue it onto a block, and then sand it so that they have just half of the thickness, so that it's flush. And then they put it underneath a, a microscope, and they have these uh, comparatives uh, where they can line up the, um, the width of the, uh, of the rings and, and um, Basically, they're looking for not an exact match in terms of the size because, say, for example, a tree that is 10 years old in 1700 is going to put up a very different ring than a tree that's 300 years old in 1700. But what they're looking for is, is a logarithmic relationship between the big and small rings, the, the, the relative sizes of the rings in the sequence, not the exact size. So you can't like take one sample and like say exactly match it up. You have to kind of graph it, um, graph it out. 
Now, these samples are only useful if the wood is in good shape, if it's of a type that there's already an existing master established where, um, where uh, we, we know definitive dates and weather patterns for a long period of time. <clears throat> and the master is established by taking samples from very old standing trees that are still alive. Uh, and there were, um, the, the pine sample for this area was partly established um, through uh, taking samples from a, a, a stand of trees that are approximately uh, 800 years old that are in Rotterdam. And um, <clears throat> so the wood, in, in addition to having to be uh, in good condition and having to be the right species, it also needs a waney edge, which is to say it needs to preserve the bark edge uh, when it was taken down. Um, and that uh, allows you to correlate the date of felling with the piece of wood. So we, uh, as I say, we uh, introduced Brian to this process in 2003 when he purchased uh, 48 Hudson, uh, got involved with doing dendro in April of 2006 there again. So 2006 is when we get the, the magic number of 1728. So... 12 years now we've, we've, we've known that this is the oldest house built in Albany. That's kind of cool. So when, when Brian was, uh, once he got the date, he's got the house, what's his plan? Like what, what is his plan moving forward? Was it, was it to take that house down as well and move it somewhere else or was he going to leave it there? Did he ever he, ever share that? Yeah, he was adamant about leaving it there um, because you know there was there was already talk about the convention center and and you know various people had mentioned talk, talked about moving it, putting it near the river, whatever. Um, one of the interesting things about Forty Eight Hudson is it has an oddly angled front wall, which correlates with the odd angle of Hudson Avenue. So it was built for that site specifically, um, and it. You know, there was talk that maybe it had been moved um, in the past, but you know, once you could get in and really look at it, it clearly hadn't been moved. The nogging bricks were all intact. Um, so it was there, and he was committed to keeping it there. He was, as Doug said, interested in the Dutch uh, period of the building. Um, he'd done some extensive restoration of the building he has in Bethle Bethlehem, um, taking it back to its Dutch period. So that was kind of his, his MO, um, and he wanted to restore it. Um, but keep the back wings because the back wings allow the building to earn some sort of uh, income. Because you know, when it was as it was originally built, it's quite a small building. Well, a very small building. So when you say the back wings, you know, there's, you and I know what it is. But yeah, you know, so there's there, well, Doug uh, Wally knows more about the history of the back wings. But there's several back wings off the building that are brick. There's a wood, uh, a single story. Well, there's a little bit of wood that was added on. Then there's two or three portions that are brick and then the single story brick on the concrete slab, more or less. I mean, that gives you a, there's, you know, there's a long history of that, but. A bunch of, a quite, bunch of additions. Well, and also it got added to, I should add, it got added to on its um, uh, east side. Um, that was in about 1790-ish um, when they widened the whole building um, and they did some alterations, which are pretty interesting, um, but have caused all sorts of problems um, for Historic Albany now and for Brian then, they, and just a quick synopsis of what they did. <clears throat> in 17, in the 
about 1790, they decided to make the building wider, but they also decided to give it a full second floor. Because when 48 Hudson was first built, it was a floor and a half. You know, a single floor for living and kitchen in the basement and then a garret above. What they did, instead of disassembling it, they just added a bay to the side and extended what the, the, the exposed beam on the front. And they took the roof, the original 18, uh, 1728 roof, they cut the collar ties and they jacked it up in place. They didn't take it apart. They just jacked it up a, a another half floor um, so they could have a full and much larger second floor. Um, the, the issue with that is that was contingent on there being that building that was torn down in the 40s and the building that was torn down two years ago holding the outward thrust of the roof because it had no collar ties anymore. Collar ties are the, the cross in a, an uppercase A that hold it together so it doesn't split apart. Well, they'd taken all of those out. Um, so when they, put, when they took the building down in the 40s, they put up a temporary, a, a very light wood frame wall um, that's been trouble for HAF and was for Brian on the, the east side um, to hold it up because it had no wall on that side. And to this day, it doesn't have a foundation on that side. The foundation that you can see if you're in the basement belongs to the Convention Center Authority because it's the foundation of, what would that be? 46, 46 Hudson Avenue. Um, so there were all sorts of issues and that we may get into that a little bit later in terms of what has to happen with the building to, to preserve it. And I'm guessing they never got their permits. They probably didn't. They just went ahead and did it. <laughs> and I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that was 1790. And I mean, yeah, they for, just for borrowed the neighbor's for, wall for 150 years. That sh that shoddy, you know, being the wall when it was probably done on a Friday afternoon after 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> probably, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the wall that's there, the east wall. I don't know how it's stood all these years. I mean, I know now because HF did a bunch of stabilization, but before that, it's a small, it's a very light wall. I think one of the one of the things that really has fascinated me, and I think a lot of people, is uh, the position of the original fireplaces in the house. Um, there, there's a, a, a Dutch evidence for a Dutch jamless fireplace in the against the back wall, the south wall, but there's also a fireplace on the um, side wall, the the west wall, which would um, make the chimney uh, not come out of the center of the roof, but come up along the side of the roof. And it seems a little peculiar until you look at all those wonderful James Eights, early 19th century watercolors of Dutch Albany. And lo and behold, you see a number of houses in there that have chimneys in this strange location, which everybody thought, you know, it's kind of odd, but we now have one of those houses with the fireplace on the side rather than at the back or the center. And not only do we have the, the fireplace on the side, but we have, it's a double fireplace. There's a fireplace in the basement, which would be the kitchen, and then there's a fireplace directly above it. So you have kind of a double flue going up the side of the house. And all that's pretty much intact, including that, uh, that west wall that was protected by the, the neighboring building that came down a while ago. But that clabbered wall um, it is, uh, dates from the very earliest period. Um, has maybe some traces of paint on it, but it's pretty amazing to see this 1720s clabbered wall that's uh, still extant in downtown Albany. It's just it had no been covered since about 1800. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of cool archaeology between the little space between the two buildings um, when um, 
um, Brian started uh, getting in there a little bit, uh, was pulling out all sorts of cool things that had just dropped in there for a couple hundred years. <laughs> don't leave us hanging. What are the cool things? Um, well, I don't know. Wally could probably speak to that better. Well, a lot of animal bones, but also uh, a lot of different um, um, really nice uh, ceramic types uh, from the late 18th, early 19th century, creamwares, things like that, a lot of personal items. Brian um, sifted through a lot of these materials, and, and he went about trying to acquire complete examples of some of these uh, pieces as well. Buying them on the like the auction market and the antiques. I think this wasn't in the the space that Doug was talking about or that Wally's referring to. But I think the coolest thing that was found in the building is one of the original shutter hinges, um, and that was found the, the day that Historic Albany acquired the building from Brian Parker on June third, I believe it was, two thousand thirteen. Um, yeah, we found it was just a little Dutch boss hinge shutter hinge. Um, that's the, I mean, it, and the most directly related to the building. Where, where was it actually found? It was found on the other wall, which doesn't okay. make much sense. The guess is that somebody, when they were doing work at some point, just found this thing, had no idea what it was, set it up on a ledge, and yeah. it just, you know, later fell out. Um, but it's just a rusty old hinge <laughs> in the basement. I, so, think, I think one of the things is important to... Uh, to just circle back on in terms of if if the building had been moved, uh, not only would the archaeology have been lost, of course, but also the basement kitchen. And uh, folks don't don't um, typically uh, think about buildings in this way. They they think of the superstructure and oh, you're saving the building, you're moving it, um, you know, to an, a new location. But you you know lose approximately a third of the building by doing that, and. Um, the moving of the building was something that was tossed around in the 1990s as part of a kind of a Dutch Albany theme park that was being planned for mm -hmm. uh, rather improbably down by the snow dock, um, which uh, thankfully never came to uh, anything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Albany, Con Albany Convention Center Authority, I'm going to say the 94 letter word, ACCA. When, uh, when did the eminent domain kick in? So I, there was never any, there was a threat that they would be willing to use eminent domain. So Brian Parker acquired the building because of its historic significance, was very interested in its historic significance. At that same time, the convention center was also interested in the property because they were acquiring all the land around it. Um, so they, Brian had, hired John G. Wade Associates to do some early, you know, some drawings on the first phase of some work. It wasn't the restoration of the building, but it was stabilization, et cetera. And as we were working on that um, and, and looking, you know, at, at next phases and what he could do, he got a letter from the Convention Center Authority telling him, don't do anything because we, we're, we're going to, one way or another, we're going to have your property. And if we have to take it by eminent domain, you're, you're going to lose a lot of money if you put money into it. So that brought his work basically to a close because he had this letter that said, you know, if you do money, you'll, we're just going to take, well, not just going to take it, but, you know, it won't be a good investment because we're right. not going to um, make you whole on that at the end of the day. So he stopped work and 
I don't want to say lost interest, but largely lost interest in the project, and, and it did deteriorate in the time between, I think that was 2007 or so, um, until uh, Historical Albany acquired it in 2013, or it was, I shouldn't say acquired, Brian Parker donated it to Historic Albany in 2013. But yeah, he, he had plans that just didn't go anywhere because of that. So fast forward to 20, let's see if my memory is correct here, 2016 and 50, 50 Hudson Falls. Mm -hmm. 2016, am I right? Yeah, that was August 2016. <laughs> um, and we see the clapboard roof. So there's our silver lining. We did lose 50, but we, we now know that well, the you, whole side was the, original. Yeah, you could see the weatherboards from, from the street. Um, when Brian took the, the, the 1930s facade or portions of the 1930s facade off, you could see the ends of the weatherboard siding. Some, the largest one, I think, was 16 inches or the largest wide. They're all about an inch, inch and a quarter thick. Um, so you could see that, but you, you could only see the end of it. You couldn't see the, the whole wall. Um, so, yeah, when they took down 50, you could then see very briefly because it had to be to, to stabilize the building, it had to be covered again. Um, but yeah, you could, you could see that for, what, 28 hours? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that comes to the, the next question, 28 hours. I mean, that's not a lot of time for a person. But if you're a almost 300-year-old house, 28 hours can, can wreck it, I mean, depending on weather. So next question. With, with the house now wrapped and stabilized, what are we going to do next with it? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. There, therein <laughs> what's lies, the, that's, what's the, that's the big question. Well, so the, <laughs> the, the thing was, there was a lot of, as you can imagine, when 50 Hudson started to collapse, um, and I got a call, I don't remember, it was like 7.30 in the morning from Kara from Historic Albany Foundation, that, so this was the day after they acknowledged that 50 was about to collapse, um, and in trying to take it down, it had shifted, and they thought they were going to lose all of 48, that, that 50 was basically going to collapse onto 48. So there was some hairy moments in through there. Um, and then when they decided they needed to take all of 50 down and remove all of 50, and that that wall that we knew was there was going to be exposed, um, there was concern of it being damaged because this wasn't, you know, those 28 hours, and I made that up, it might have been, you know, 18, but it was it was a short period of time. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of time to analyze it or look at it. Or I mean, this was during an emergency demolition process and an emergency stabilization of 48 Hudson. So there were workers doing their thing, and there was cranes and well, wrecking machinery. There weren't really cranes. Um, so one of the things that had to be established was how they could put a wall up or in case the, the siding or that whole sidewall of, of 48, because some, some of 48 and 50 shared walls back and forth. So there were, once they took down 50, there were holes in 48. And as they were taking down 50, you could see that there were parts of 40, 48 that were holding up parts of 50. So they were so intermingled. Mm -hmm. They had to figure out how to cover that up and stabilize it, help have that help stabilize 48. Um, so there was all of that going on at the same time. So right now, if you go by, it's just got corrugated siding over it, but it's completely encapsulated. But the original take was that they would just anchor to the original 1828 siding. 
and Historic Albany Foundation told them, nope, that's not going to happen. So it's, it's a completely independent wall. It doesn't touch um, 48 Hudson's historic wall at all. It's just a, an independent wall. So there was a lot of that going back and forth trying to figure out. And there were pieces that were trapped between the buildings that nobody knew about. So one of the pieces that came out, which didn't end up in the basement, it was still up in the air, is what we believe is one of the original gutters, a wood, a wood gutter that was just sandwiched between the two buildings. Um, but that was also part of the process in the emergency demolition and all the contractors you know, going through it saying, nope, don't throw that away. Save this, save that. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a lot of, of that um, before we can even get to the <laughs> what we use it for. So we, we boxed it up, essentially. Yeah, Put it's, in a nice, it's, yep, enormous it's a nice crate. little, yeah, basically. Like you would an artifact at a yeah. museum. Poke holes in it, let it breathe. So plans for restoration. I talk, you should talk a little bit about the scram so, on the front. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, so there was, so when Brian Parker got the building and then when Historical Albany got the building, there was a lot of discussions about what do you do with this building because it's not a straightforward um, preservation issue because the building had been so altered over time. And like I said, um, getting the building on the National Register was a little bit hairy because um, it had been so altered and it, it so changed over time. Um, but the, it, it did get on, and it got on for national significance because it's such a rare example of what it is. Um, and there is quite a bit of historic fabric left, so it, it did get on. But trying to figure out what you do with that, as I said, 46 Hudson played an essential role in holding 48 up. 50 Hudson played a pretty essential role in holding 48 up. So how you restore that building now. Um, we had back and forth with um, the state um, because Historic Albany's gotten grants for the building, um, and the, the general con uh, agreement is that the building will go back, the, the front part of the building will go back to its 1728 form because that's the most structurally sound because the other form was contingent on buildings being on either side, which is not the case anymore. Um, and because that was the uh, agreement that it would go back to its 1728 form, um, a, a, a small group of people worked with um, the consulate in the Netherlands to get funding for a scrim, which you mentioned at the beginning of this talk, that you can now tell it's a Dutch building. Well, even when Historic Albany acquired it, you couldn't tell it was a Dutch building. It looked like a 1930s facade, but not just a 1930s facade, but a, 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 a half-demolished 1930s facade <laughs> because pieces have been pulled off. Um, so now it has an illustration of what the building, what we believe the building looked like in 1728. And there's actually quite a lot of information. Um, the, the most interesting feature on the outside, the only original feature of the outside of the building holds an incredible amount of information, which is the molded anchor beam, um, that it was encapsulated in 1960s storefront aluminum um, when Brian bought it. And that's the sort of thing where people didn't know what was there because you, you couldn't see it, it was all encased. Um, but when he removed that, there's a, a molded anchor beam. So Dutch houses, um, the, the anchor beams are an important feature of Dutch architecture. They're one of the, the defining features. Um, and so this, this beam spans both the inside. You go inside, you can see it on the inside wall, but it also goes outside. So rather than just leaving it blah on the outside, they, they gave it a profiled exterior. Um, and they actually added to it when they, in 1790s when they widened the building. 
Um, so that's on the outside, but because that's there, you can see where the doors were, where the windows were, because they're all mortise and tendon into that fabric. So we actually know quite a bit about how it, it went together. We know the pitch of the roof because the original roof framing is in the attic, and when they cut the um, collar ties, they left parts of the collar ties. So you can do the math on you know, the, the angle of the roof because the collar ties were flat. Now they're at a, an angle. Um, so that molded anchor beam um, and, and some other evidence within the building gives us quite a bit of information as to what it looks like. So there's a scrim on the outside of the building now with a little informational sign um, that, that shows what, what the building looked like. And that's what Historic Albany's been using to kind of garner interest in the building and get mm -hmm. people which brings me, yeah, which brings me to the next thing, funding. Yeah. You need funds to pull this sort of thing off, to do it properly. So uh, on your way out, if you're interested, we have these sheets over on the side table. Fill out all the information if you want to do a nice donation. You also get to see a nice little picture. <laughs> or so, if you're listening to the podcast, you can go to historicalbany.com. <laughs> Dot org, sorry. <laughs> take, who, who's running this? If you, you, know, if you put card. historic Albany in, you're going to find it no matter what. <laughs> Reading my cards before I get to them. So with that, I think we'll, we'll open up to questions. So we, have, we do have one question here, and it says, what are the oldest artifacts that have been found in the building? Hmm. Well, the hinge dates yeah. to the, the 1728, so that's... Um, but I don't know. In the archaeology, did they find anything that... Yeah, we did archaeology in, uh, well, over a couple of seasons, 2015 to 2017, and um, th this was related to the stabilization of the building. We were also, um, th there were some new footings being put in uh, along the lines of the original foundation, which only survives in two walls in the, the basement. So we were looking to see if the base of the foundation or even builder's trenches survived, and they did not in those earlier locations. Um, we did find, um, however, in addition to the personal items, marbles and combs and things like that that you find in that kind of thing, and uh, fragments from old meals like uh, bones and things like that, um, we did find nails and other things like that that might have been either from the building when it was initially built um, or from slightly later periods. So, I mean, basically there aren't any artifacts in the building that predate the construction of the building, I would say. Uh, here's one of my questions. So besides the fireplace in the basement, you had mentioned that there were giveaways in the basement. Was there any other giveaways in that basement besides that fireplace? The large size of the beams so yeah, in, the, in the basement, yeah. you could see all the beams, beams and the underside of the floor. So the basement, yeah, you, you could see, and, and you know, the walls, but that Yeah, the, the basement, you can see, you can determine the, the plan. You can see the framing for where the fireplaces were, So you, and, and typically Dutch kind of detail, so you, you know right away. And the, the massiveness of the, of the timbers um, date to the 18th century. So um, it, it defined it as, a, as basically a two-room house with two fireplaces. Um, and evidence upstairs, you could tell there was a side hall where the entrance was. Um, but really, um, the, the, the trick is, uh, in my mind, it, it's so fragile and so unique uh, and so much a part of our, our, our history here in Albany. Um, it's, it's really a difficult thing to, to determine how you would restore it because 
Um, you can't just expose that side wall and say, okay, it's going to be back out in the weather again. Um, so we've gone through all kinds of ideas. Do you, do you, do you build a glass box around it and it becomes an artifact? Um, do you do partially a glass box? Do you, do you simply just say, okay, we're going to restore it and you put a new wood shingle roof on it and you, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, really, it's really tricky. It's a unique situation we have here, but it's also a situation where we have the opportunity to do something really, really significant um, and unique for our city. So, Another uh, difficulty is the fact that uh, we determined through archaeology that the original ground surface was about two feet lower than it is now, and so the house would have had enough height to have a, like a proper stoop, which right now it's only just a couple of feet above, above grade at this point. So are there, are there any other examples uh, around the country of, of similar cities finding a very old building and, and trying to restore it? Or is this, are, we, are we kind of trailblazing the way here? Hmm, good question. Right. Well, it's definitely a unique situation in that, I mean, it, it's NHF's, you know, the building's claim to fame is, and you have to word this carefully, but it's the oldest and most intact Dutch colonial house, urban Dutch house in the Hudson Valley, because Schenectady's in the Mohawk Valley. So, I mean, Albany's fairly interesting in that it has all that, the, the history that we all know about, but there aren't many old buildings at all. I mean, there's really almost nothing. Um, you go to Boston, you see a lot more old buildings. Um, and, and other cities. Um, we did so, have the example of the Quackenbush House, however, which yes. went through a lot of the same sort of uh, mechanisms where uh, it was to be taken, it was the late 60s for an off-ramp of uh, 787, late 60s, early 70s, and preservationists sort of rallied, it was documented. Uh, there were reports written, a lot of publicity. Eventually the city of Albany acquired it and um, it underwent something of a restoration, a, a stabilization, right. stabilization at least. <laughs> it's old <laughs> English yeah. pub now. It's the old English pub now. But that so, didn't yeah. go through the the gymnastics, the architectural gymnastics that 48, so that's what I was getting to, is it, it's unique in how much it's changed, but how intact it yeah. is within that, all the changes that went on around right. it. There really wasn't and as trying much to figure out what to do with. In the 60s and 70s as there is now, you know, that, when, when well, the city acquires something like that, it's like, all right, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, and, okay, well, let's and do that. the Quackenbush House looked much like the Quackenbush House does now. It's, it's you know, that's not a, it, it, it didn't get changed as much on the outside and, and all the structural deficiencies that 48's now suffering from. Um, kind of the, so sa the sad about. thing is that there, there was a, a handful of Dutch houses that did survive up into the 1940s. Um, and we have good pictures of uh, that were in in the downtown area, um, but they, you know, they weren't recognized as being significant in one way or another, they disappeared. Um, and so we just have the Quackenbush House and the, the Radliff House and a fragment on Pearl Street of a wall that's incorporated right. into another, into a building, but. Which is currently um, for sale. Which is currently for sale, yeah. A portion you, you of can, a Dutch you wall. You can own a Dutch wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it becomes, you know, for for a city as old as Albany, with the history that we have, it's it's just incredible that just literally maybe three things survive from that period that are visible. 
Okay, so here's a good question. What do we know about the people that originally lived in the house? Besides, they liked leaving their animal bones on the floor. <laughs> well, this is the floor of the basement, so to be fair to them. <laughs> well, um, I don't know that we have a full history of, of everyone. We know, we know a bit about uh, the Holtz, who later on used the building, but the, the Radliffs, I did find something interesting recently, and I, I wrote about it in an, in an article I did for the Hudson Valley uh, Vernacular Architecture Newsletter. Um, in the 1880s, when they were taking down the Stats House um, on, um, on the corner of State and Pearl in Albany, uh, which was the oldest house still standing at that time in the uh, city. It was built in 1661, I think, or 66, something like that. Um, and, um, but it had a couple of later additions, and it had been truncated in the 1790s. Uh, among the rubble that they had found, the newspaper noted that there was a brick that, that had Jay Radliffe written on it. And so I did a little bit of researching, and, and in fact, Radliffe had a, uh, was a brick maker and mason at, at one point. Hmm. So um, aside from that, though, maybe you yeah. can. I, well, I mean, the so, so the, the history of the naming of the house, so we call it, typically call it 48 Hudson because it's easier, but the, Yo the uh, Radliffe, the Awesome. In Ostrand Radliff House, um, when I first learned about the building from Paul Huey and Diana, Diana's book, it was the Radliff House because he thought it dated to the 1750s. Um, and that's how everyone knew it was the Radliff House, the Radliff House. But once the dendrochronology was done, it became, oh, well, he didn't build it because he wasn't alive yet when, you know, in 1728 or was very young in 1728. Um, so the, the first owner was discovered to be... Um, uh, Van Ostrand, and he was a mayor or something. There was some sort of, he was an alder person. There was, he had some sort of elected office. I don't remember the history. There's probably people in this room who remember more. He, he wasn't mayor, but past that, I couldn't tell okay. you what it was. He was something. Hmm. But anyway, but that's how the, the, the name Van Ostrand Radliff, because Radliff was the name that was first identified with it, but he wasn't the builder. Here's another good question. So we keep saying it's a Dutch building. You can tell it's a Dutch building by looking at it. Uh, it was built in 1728, though. Uh, but the Dutch period technically ended in 1664. How does something like that happen? Well, the, the, the Dutch culture was so ingrained here um, that well after the English took over, this was a Dutch city. Uh, they were still speaking Dutch. They were still um, doing a lot of the things, the, the lifestyle, the food. Um, and the architecture, speaking, speaking yeah, the, the, the architecture didn't change. Um, it's sort of, you sort of had the, when you look at those James Eights watercolors, you see all these gable roof Dutch houses and then interdispersed, you'll see these Georgian style English houses popping up. Uh, so you had this real, real odd mix, but, but you have travelers accounts in the 18th century coming to Albany and they talk about how Dutch it was, even though the English had been ruling for a hundred years. Um, it was still very much a Dutch culture in the city. So um, they were still building in, in that style, some people. Um, I think well, and, it, and particularly the Northern Hudson Valley. I mean, when, when you know, in, in working with the Dutch consulate in, in for the scrim and, and they've taken quite an interest in 48 Hudson, but when you bring Dutch people and you, sh around you know various 
culturally Dutch sites in America, a lot of the buildings architecturally, they don't, it doesn't register to them as Dutch because we call Dutch, it's a melting pot of, of, of different people. Um, but in the Northern Hudson Valley, it was so, um, I don't want to say backward, but you know, they, they, they kept those old cultural traditions for so long. There were people still speaking Dutch, but the buildings that were being built up here look very Dutch. I mean, you could, you could go to Amsterdam or, or rural villages outside of you know, Amsterdam, and, and the buildings look very much the same. And the construction technologies are virtually identical in some areas of the Netherlands to what we were building here. Yeah, there's one person who comes to the city, I think, in the, toward the end of the 18th century, and they describe the city as more Dutch than decent. It's <laughs> the phrase they Which used. should be the motto now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that Albanians are stubborn, set-in-your-ways people. Or they were back then. Uh, well, some, <laughs> some of it also has to do with the nature of the building trades at the time, because until the breakdown of the apprenticeship system, uh, really in the 1830s and 40s, um, the, uh, the passing on of the mysteries of the trade was really kind of, they were kind of kept kind of secret, and there were very uh, closed social circles. So... Um, the building trades have traditionally, for those reasons, been very conservative, and it's really hard to affect change. The people who built those English-style houses, some of them actually, um, particularly up until the 1770s, 1780s, they're actually, uh, a lot of them are framed in the Dutch manner, and it's the, the local carpenters attempting to give their clients something that appears like the houses that, that the people who are moving into the area want. To, to live in. And people like, like Schuyler Mansion, Schuyler's actually importing people from New England to yep. do some of the detailing because there's nobody in Albany that can do the, the modern sort of English Georgian style. Um, yeah, the builders that come to build the um, Schuyler Mansion, but also um, the uh, Van Rensselaer Manor House in 1765 are all coming from Boston. And these folks had been employed. They had first become acquainted with uh, Albany because they had been sent over to build the fort during the middle of the French and Indian War in the city of Albany. Many of them went back to Boston but were called back by people who had become acquainted with them and, and um, were asked to build these kind of um, English-style houses for the, uh, the upper crust in Albany. So a, a series of houses, they include also the, uh, the Kyler House, which no longer stands. It was in Rensselaer and some other houses um, were built after that manner. Well, but even like uh, Tenbrook Mansion, um, there's Dutch, the boss hinges, like I said, we found at um, uh, mm -hmm. inside 48 Hudson. There, that's 1798 or so? 1998. Yeah. And there are some Dutch boss hinges used on basement windows, yep. but also the barn that was behind it was a Dutch framed barn and that was built presumably around that time. That was torn down about 2000 or so. Yeah, yeah and in, in rural areas in, in our region, up until as late as about 1850, uh, barns and, and some houses are being framed using the same techniques. Right. So it's a, it's a tradition that lasts a very long time. And it really only goes extinct because of a, uh, of a shortage of, uh, of available large pieces of wood because if anything characterizes the, the Dutch framing system is that it requires uh, large pieces of timber. And starting in about the 1840s or so, 
Um, a lot of the local supplies of wood are being exhausted, but railroads are also being uh, created. And um, what you have is a kind of a, a turnover of the, the trade. And so now most of the wood is coming from, say, the Adirondacks, uh, northwestern Pennsylvania. It's coming either uh, being floated down the Hudson and being sawn into, uh, into boards and then stacked in Albany. It's being moved on the canals. Uh, or it's coming from, as I say, south or um, northwestern Pennsylvania, and it's coming on the the, the, uh, the canal from there. Um, so, last last question before we wrap. And it's actually it's a two two pointed question. Uh, what is the best use for this building? Uh, would it be a historic site for tourism? And how much would it cost to fully restore it? Well, those are both difficult questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, the, the, tough the one. historic Albany's goal, and there are people there. Well, you're a board member, which I'm not. So I mean, there's there's other people who could no, answer don't talk the down goal. To yourself, Phil. <laughs> I used to be. <laughs> um, the the goal has always been since since we acquired the building in 2013 um, that the the interior be accessible to the public. But I think the 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 stance has been that it not merely be a museum. Um, that it have more, and, and the back wings, Historic Albany's been committed from the beginning, just as Brian, to preserving the back wings because they give the, the building some ability to um, earn its keep. Um, so the goal has never been for it to just be a little jewel box museum all by itself. Um, but the exact use has never, you know, that's not been established. Um, you know, the, the, the closest to that that's, the, the Albany distillery at one point was interested um, and they would do the distilling in that back wing and the front room would be the tasting room. Something of that nature would be, you know, good because obviously you want something that's not going to damage the front part of the building um, but could use utilize the back and mm -hmm. would allow people access. I've um, always thought um, that because it is such a fragile artifact that you, you restore as much as you have to to stabilize it and you allow people to enter it, but it would be really kind of cool to build a replica of it uh, next door um, that absolutely, because we know all the details. I mean, it would not be hard to, to build a pretty accurate replica and furnish it with replica Dutch furniture and allow people to go in, children to go in, and you have fireplaces in the, fire in the fireplaces, and they can open the Dutch costs, they can sit on the furniture, um, and let people come to Albany and really experience a small Dutch house of that period and then go next door and see the actual artifacts that allowed the reconstruction to take place. Um, well, well, that's the thing. I mean, you can see how the building goes together in its current form. So to restore, restore it back too much, like Doug was talking about, if it's pristine in there, you, you'll lose some of that, which I think would also be unfortunate. Um, and it creates a, a fairly unique opportunity to to see a Dutch building because you can see the backside of the weatherboard, you can see the nogging bricks, you can see the uh, you know how the nogging bricks are held in place. You can see all of that. Um, in terms of the cost, that's that's a really tough one because without knowing what the use is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's a tough one. Let's just say, fully restored but base. I, I don't. I mean, we've done numbers, like a billion dollars. Are we talking a billion dollars? Fourteen billion, here? roughly. No, I, I don't. I honestly don't. I, I honestly, that seems exaggerated. I it would, that is that's the that's the high point. I mean, it would be it would be down from there probably, but 
If you're going to hold me to it, I won't go lower than 14 billion. Stitch together with golden thread. <laughs> Doug, you want to take a stab at the number, or are you going to? Oh, I'm not going to say. <laughs> I, when I do my work, I don't worry about that. I just do what I want to do, and hopefully somebody will pay for it. But it does, but it does <laughs> save money if you don't restore it all the way back. So there's, there's advantages there. Yeah, that's true. But structurally, right now, Historic Albany is raising money to structurally stabilize it. Um, and, and off the top of my head, I can't even remember how much that is. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the first stage of structural 400,000. Yeah, 400,000. But that's the first stage of structural uh, stabilization. There, there'll be others in there. Okay, well, I think, I think with the $400,000 number, I think we, we can end that here. It's a nice round number. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Walter and Doug and Bill for joining us tonight. And thank you for joining us. At the time of this podcast, Historic Albany Foundation is in the first two phases of a multi-phase restoration plan for the Van, the Van Ostrand Ratliff House within 48 Hudson Ave. The proceeds from the recording of this podcast will go toward the restoration of the Dutch house. For more information about the house, its restoration, and to learn about how you can be a part of it all, go to Historic Albany's website at uh, historic-albany.org. And this podcast was made possible in part by a grant from the Albany County Convention and Visitors Bureau Foundation. All right, and that'll wrap it up for us tonight. And uh, if you want to take a drive home, Make sure you go by Hudson Ave and get a good look at it. <laughs> that scrim is beautiful. It is. And it survived a whole winter, and it's about to go into another. And it's yeah, just amazing good. how good it looks. It's a year and a half old. So thank you, everyone, for attending. And uh, we'll see you at the next event.